you know, what kind of entrepreneur are you at the end of the day? Uh, he spoke about this one person he knows who founded a company, the stars aligned, and he sold it for like billions. Like he just made a killing. Yeah. And this guy, this guy that sold his business was sitting in front of him and he said, I'm depressed. He's miserable. He's unhappy. And I was like, how, how is it that you can score so huge and be so miserable with your life? Hi there, guys. Today we are joined by Oren Klopper. He's the founder and CEO of NetShirt, which is one of Microsoft's most successful partners on the African continent. The context for this particular episode of the show is scale. So as a founder entrepreneur, if wherever you found your business, at some point, you're going to need to figure out how to scale. And the big question is, well, what kind of an entrepreneur are you? Are you the kind of entrepreneur that wants a lifestyle business, a hair salon, a small business that will always remain small? Or are you the kind of entrepreneur that really wants to build the next Tesla? Uh, and these two types of entrepreneurs are fundamentally different. The DNA of these two founders are very, very different. Uh, NetShirts has got an interesting story. They have entered the North American market, founded uh 15 years ago here locally in uh, South Africa and have now scaled over into North America. They've acquired two companies. And the, the narrative, unfortunately, for many African uh, companies who wanted to scale into international markets is that they have failed. Uh, Sorbet failed, huge business locally failed in the UK. Even Discovery, probably the most uh, successful business ever to come from the African continent, also failed in North America. Vitality is still there, but fundamentally the full business wasn't able to scale. So what do you do if that is the truth? As a founder, do you decide to scale? And to what extent do you scale? And most importantly, how do you not make the kind of mistakes that many entrepreneurs have made in the process of trying to take their business to that next level on a global stage? Oren shares some really fascinating insights into what they've learned into this particular process. Uh, pay careful attention, guys, to their specific growth strategy, which is all around acquisitions. One of the big moments in the show was around uh, exiting. So as a founder, do you have a number? How big should your number be if you did sell? And ultimately, what would you do after you sold? which is a question that many of us do not answer until it's too late and we've actually sold. So in this particular area, we also talk about a book uh, that Bo Burlingham wrote. He's the editor of Inc. Magazine for some 30 plus years. He's also been on this show. Uh, Bo uh, did some research into companies that exited uh, their companies and many of them actually wind up depressed. And uh, so we talk about, you know, if you're a founder entrepreneur looking to exit, what exactly should you be thinking about post-exit? Uh, Bo was on episode uh, Matt Brown's show 291, so check that out. Uh, there's just so much uh, going on in the show, guys, so I don't want to overbake the intro too much. So let's get on with the show. Into Oren Klopper. Uh, hey, guys, welcome back to yet uh, another cracking installment of the Matt Brown show. Today we are joined by uh, Oren Klopper. Welcome to the show, dude. Thanks, Matt. So uh, we're going to have an informal chat um, and just see where we kind of go. Um, so you're in Tulum. Where is Tulum? Mexico. Right. Okay. And you're in quarantine. So explain that one to our viewers and yeah. uh, audience around the world. How does that happen? Yeah, so it's about two hours from Cancun. No, and I just, uh, you know, as you know, Matt, a lot, I mean, our, a big part of our business strategy is the U.S., and I was based in the U.S. until until the end of 2019. Um, and I, I just haven't been back, but I, I think, you know, we've been able to really still, I think, turn uh, this pandemic into a huge opportunity by working remotely, but I just needed to get back and uh, need to spend two weeks in a country that the U.S. are happy for me to quarantine in. If I had a U.S. residence visa, I wouldn't have to do that, but I don't. I just have a B1, B2. My application to have my residence visa renewed was declined. Um, so that's kind of why I have to quarantine. But if someone had a green card or an O1A or an L1, they could just travel straight there. But they're worse places to, to quarantine. 
quarantine. Uh, but um, but let's get into that because I think um, I obviously know your business very well. Well, not as well as you, of course, but certainly more than most. And uh, you know what we do. Um, and what's interesting, and I think a, a great point of departure for our audience uh, around the world, which is largely business owners um, or aspiring entrepreneurs, um, is really about scale, right? And I think, I, I, you know, uh, my listeners, anybody who's been listening to the show will know what uh, what we're trying to do, which is to build a scale business and, you know, kind of move from services to product and go on this whole productization scale journey. And it's hard. It's really, yeah. really hard. And um, anyone who says it's easy is lying. Uh, but um, but uh, one of the, my mentor, just to, this is all context for where we where I think we should go today, um, is that my mentor, I said to him, look, I've got my green card for the States and I'm actually moving over there. And um, he said to me, sell. And I was like, what do you mean, sell? And I was like, I'm not selling. <laughs> Dude, come on, man. You're living the dream. Africa's best tech startup. I'm not, I'm not ready to sell. I'm going to go over to America and I'm going to scale there and I'm going to like build an empire. And he was like, Dude, entrepreneurs with bigger businesses, with more money than you, that are smarter than you, went over there and got uh, you know their asses handed to you, or to them rather. Um, so what makes you different? Um, and this, that's the preamble, right? And I think the, the truism, I suppose, is that we all want to build something of value. Um, and at some point, you have to say to yourself, what kind of entrepreneur are you? Are you the kind of entrepreneur that um, is going to be a one-hit wonder and you know build something of value in South Africa and sell it, or do you back yourself to really go and build a global empire? And the the narrative that I hear from uh, entrepreneurs in my network, Aaron, is that no one, very few people have made it successfully. Uh, in other words, expanded. Um, Ian Fur and Sorbet went to the UK, also lost um, you've had a stab at going over to the US and to my, to my knowledge, perfectly, you know, to be perfectly honest, you're the only company I know that has a, a strategy that, that is seemingly working for, for the US. Um, everybody else, even, even guys who've gone to the UK, sorry, not to the UK to like, um, you know, parts of Europe, Germany, Holland, uh, New Zealand, Australia, they've all, all failed. Like it, there's basically a six month to 12 month period where, the business cannot sustain itself without the entrepreneur founder. Um, so I'd love to to use uh, all of that context to kind of uh, maybe go here to start with is um, what is NetSureit's, uh, you know, sort of scale strategy for, and feel free to share as much as you want or as little as you want, but um, with, with regards to scale, I mean, obviously you back yourself, you've been on this journey for some time. Is it possible and what have you learned as a, you know, as a founder entrepreneur about entering international markets once you have a business that is kind of at a product market fit stage? We're, we're definitely still a, a work in progress. I think when we entered the U.S., we made every mistake except go out of business. Um, we lost pretty much all the people. We kept the majority of the clients. Um, we didn't achieve any organic growth. Um, so we made, we made every mistake. Um, and yeah, I suppose, you know, too, Matt, you've never arrived. It's, uh, I mean, we're going through so much work we're doing internally now around looking at our differentiation again and looking at our positioning again. Um, so yeah, it's, it's always, it's always work. It's always work in progress. Um, but yeah, we have some very bold aspirations for the U.S., and um, we obviously, our, the, bigger, the biggest part of our business is in South Africa, but a third of our business um, is, in, is in the U.S. And uh, we want to, we've got very bold ambitions on what we want to achieve, um, but uh, nothing's for certain. And uh, we, we haven't figured it out. Uh, we've got some ideas and we've got some things that we're doing, but it's definitely still work in progress. So, um, so tell me, Aaron, when you cast your mind back to, or maybe when, when did you look at the US first? What was what year roughly was that when you were like, hey, we, we, we closed a customer in 2015, okay, um, in New York. A friend of mine was uh, a, a tequila filled evening, and then I I sent him an email. Uh, the when I got home, actually, 
And uh, he was talking about his IT. I said, I think we can do it. And then um, I went and saw him that day. And uh, it was 11 a.m. actually, I think the meeting was. And uh, he did pour, he drinks premium tequila. His name is is Jack. He's an absolute legend. Anyway, we ended up signing them as a customer at, uh, I think it was $8.50 to the dollar at the time. And then it shifted to 12 pretty quickly. And it became just a very, very profitable SLA. Or sort of managed services monthly contract, um, and then we took that into our strategic planning. We said, "What are we going to do with this?" We said, "Let's grow organically." And I'd been traveling through to Microsoft two or three times a year, and each time I just went through, I said I, I met with other members of Entrepreneurs Organization and uh, and YPO as well because I was an, I'm a member of both of those organizations. And long story short, we we ended up uh, finding a business where both the shareholders had moved to Denver, and uh, we ended up acquiring acquiring their business in, in 2016. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. And uh, when you cast your mind back to to that, how did your mindset change from the curious, can we do this? We got our first you know, customer in New York, let's go and scale this thing. How did your mindset change when you really started to get into the market itself in America? You know, well, I remember one of, my, uh, one of our founders at the time <clears throat> saying to me, Oren, you, you realize you're going to like, like you're going to end up with your sleeves rolled up very high and uh, you're, uh, you're going to be in the thick of it. So I was selling, I was account managing, I was trying to deal with technical crisis. We lost a lot of people. Uh, we, we had client loss. So it was from, you know, go forth and conquer. And uh, the idea was to do multiple additional acquisitions and uh, we just weren't able to pull that off, and uh, it was it was it was really 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 hard. And I went from kind of a bit of a grandiose, high level strategic view into the into the the, the, the thick of it. But I, I think learned a lot of a lot of valuable a lot of valuable lessons. And what what were one or two of those things? What's one thing that you really wish entrepreneurs would know about? You know scale into North America as a you know, yeah. African enterprise? Yeah, I'd say in the context of our business and our example, um, we needed local leaders uh, and we needed, uh, we needed local leaders. That's uh, definitely a learning. So both of the founders of the business we initially bought had already moved to Denver, and the one, the one, the one founder was commuting, um, and it wasn't that was not sustainable. Um, so you know, we, I took over, and uh, etc. And um, I, it just, yeah. So I wouldn't. We are not planning to do that again. Uh, we did another uh, acquisition now that closed in February, and. Um, we're hoping to close another another acquisition uh, today or tomorrow in, in, in New Jersey. Um, and a key part of that learning that we've applied, Matt, is um, we, we want to keep the, the key leaders that are already in that team. And there might be one or two that go, but like really keep them and have them be part of the journey that we're traveling. That's the one thing. And then this is, you know, you mentioned scaling and there's this great book called Scaling Up Excellence. 
Um, and uh, the, the author talks about this idea of um, Buddhism versus Catholicism and Buddhism being less prescriptive and more uh, sort of there's a core concept, but less prescriptive Catholicism being more prescriptive and almost like a, he compares it to a franchise model. And I think we were too prescriptive and dictatorial. And so what we're trying to take into our growth going forward in the U.S. is to, to, to we've literally created a sheet where it's Buddhist Catholic. <laughs> we just have things like we're not going to force and try and just, just focus on the value. What's going to create value for our people and the people in those, in those regions? What's going to create value for our customers and change those things? Um, so keep the key leaders and keep as many of the people as we possibly can and don't change. We're trying not to change uh, too much. Um, so those are probably two of the, two of the key learnings. That's really powerful stuff. Um, thanks, Aaron. I think the one thing I would like to maybe double down on is this acquisitions kind of approach to to entering that market. Um, I suppose my 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 view is, depending on the business, of course, context is everything. That either you're going to try and do it yourself, you're going to hire a local, get somebody over there, and they're going to sell on the ground and literally, as you know, give them some shares in that North American entity, and then you know, hopefully, the thing will work. What it sounds like to me um, is that. Um, is that you've you've elected to go with a different uh, growth strategy, um, and I'd love to unpack that with you. Um, you mentioned 2015, you acquired your first uh, company. You've now you know learned a lot from that and how you operationalize and integrate that sort of a you know entity that's not part of your core operation. Um, and now you 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 again are acquiring new companies. So I wanted to maybe get your views on on why you chose that as a particular growth strategy for you guys. Um, so our growth strategy is, uh, from an aspirational perspective, it's both organic and acquisitive. Um, and yeah, so the New York is a uh, is very very competitive market, um, and uh, so to achieve what we want to achieve from a scale perspective um, is going to be hard if we just did organic growth uh, and. There is so the same pressure we face as a business where it's difficult to find new customers. So is the rest of the market feeling that pressure. So I, we thought to ourselves, how do we turn that into an opportunity? So there are many what's called an MSP in our space that are they're really struggling to grow. And um, so they are looking for, or more, let's put it this way, more open to being part of a journey where that has um, a different approach to growth. And uh, the one piece of it is to leverage efficiencies and cost savings and put that into marketing investment uh, so that we have a bigger uh, pool of funds to invest in marketing and innovation and growth. And then also the, the fun and excitement of the acquisitive growth um, as well. So, yeah, look, let me put it this way. If we just do acquisitive and we don't bring the organic, I think our strategy will fail mm. um, because uh, we, have to, we have to add the organic growth as well. So it's, it's, it's double. Um, and to an extent, we are centralizing some of the marketing uh, and, and innovation and growth uh, piece of our strategy, but uh, the customer service and the actual on-the-ground sales and the, the projects and the technical architecture and scoping, that's in those regions. So to elaborate a bit further, what we did in Manhattan is uh, we acquired a business uh, that we've known for, for a while, and they're literally almost diagonally across the street from us. So that was pure coincidence that that happened because we'd moved from Brooklyn, and, and we'd known them before, and then I got a message from Dean, and he says, Really? You've literally moved in across <laughs> the road? Just like, you, dude, you could look out the window and see the offices. So what we did is um, we tucked our business into there. So Dean is now the managing director for NetShirt New York. And then for the business in, in New Jersey, uh, he will be the, the managing director for NetShirt New Jersey. And then they will have their respective sales targets. And we 
through combined working with them, must put leads into those businesses, leveraging our strategies and some of the stuff that that we're doing with you and uh, and so forth. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does, hundred percent. I mean, what do you uh, explain? How what what's your approach to acquisition for growth? Because I'm quite interested in that. Um, I'm always, everybody knows I'm looking to eventually exit uh, Black Swan and, and kind of, you know, move on to the next thing. I'm not a one hit wonder. I'm like, I got so many ideas. Um, and uh, I wanted to get your views on when you are looking for a strategic partner to acquire, what are some of the characteristics that you use to identify prospects in that specific context? I mean, do you look for services that you can, you know, is it the same sort of thing that a private equity company would may look for in, in, in a typical acquisition, you know, um, or is yeah. there, is there other things that you, that you put you personally as an, as a leadership team use, or as in a founder that you use to evaluate what a good acquisition may look like for you in the context of scaling? Yeah. So if, if I talk to your context of you actually wanting to go to the U S and potentially lead and operate in a business. Do you want me to talk to that content? Yeah, yeah, or? cool. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, for all of these opportunities, you know, our purpose is supporting the dreams of the doers. And um, the incarnation of that purpose within our culture and our business and in my personal life, because I've done this since 2004, is we've got a dream book. And in my dream book is my top 10 personal goals and dreams visualized. That's what I want in my life. And um, if in uh, if under, in understanding an, a, a potential acquisition opportunity, what that leader really wants in their life or those shareholders really want in their life versus what I want in my life, that's where there's some, some coming together, a meeting of minds. And there's a, a bedrock of values that sit under that as well, where it will become quite clear. So we generally, you know, we've always had this type of purpose and uh, what do you want in your life discussion and then bringing it back to values. Um, so it depends. If the person wants to exit, you know, so if there's, you know, you you have a, a set of values and a way you treat people in a culture and uh, what what feels good in your soul, and if the business you're acquiring, there's some level of match in that, um, I think that's a good thing to look out for if you can find it. Um, I we take we take a less of a private equity type approach, but a lot of private equity firms will you'll ask them and they'll say the leadership team is critically important. Um, in your context, if you're doing what you what you when you do what you're planning to do. Um, and it's a challenge I haven't got the answer to, but I'll give you the nuance that I've tried to remain aware of, and I haven't figured it out. You know, even when we when we appointed a managing director for Nature New York before we did the, this, um, uh, the, before we did that acquisition back in twenty, or when we before we did the acquisition we did now, and when Brian got appointed as a managing director for South Africa, I I I was I was quite um, concerned about making sure. I gave them the space to have their leadership voice because I communicate a lot and I communicate very openly. And if I'm doing that in the New York office and the South African office all the time, then both these leaders are not going to have the space for their voice in their culture. And if you were to go in and hypothetically you took over, you bought a business and there was a key leader Think about that. I don't know what the answer is or, you know, every situation is different. But, like, I'm, I'm carefully thinking about how do we make sure Dean, who's the managing director for Nature at New York, his voice and his entrepreneurial DNA does not get lost in this big mature drive and aspiration to build a great, to build a great business. Mm. Um, so I would definitely look for that. And then... Yeah, the other other elements of uh, of diligence. I mean, cash cash is the main reason aggressive growth businesses run into problems. Um, to this day, we have a weekly cash flow meeting where we have a daily uh, we call it daily banking. We have a daily banking report that we see every single day, 
It's got receivables, it's got payables or debtors or creditors, depending on what you call them. It's got cash balances. It's got a view if we lost any of our funding facilities, what cash we would have left. So the cash obsession is is a good one to have. Um, yeah, I, I, no, I think those are kind of some of the key ones. Yeah, there's a lot to get into there. I think um, <clears throat> one of the interesting sort of, uh, you know, uh, I would say intellectual exercises that I've been doing over the last year is, uh, you know, if, if I did sell, what would I sell for? And I think everybody entrepreneur has, all entrepreneurs have a number. They should, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, it's less about the number. Cause one of the things that one of the, actually one of the really great books that I'm reading at the moment is something called the messy marketplace. Have you read that? No. Okay. So the, re- the, me- the messy marketplace is a ridiculously expensive book, <laughs> but it's actually a very good one to read as well. Um, but basically it's all about acquisition. So from who- different types of acquirers, you're a strategic uh, acquirer, as an example, a private equity acquirer, acquirer is a different one. A private investor is a different one. A family uh, acquirer is a different one, like Epsidan and the shops. If I take instance. notes, can you still see me? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Go for it. Okay. Okay. Cool. Okay. I just want to capture the messy marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Um, yeah, it's, um, a a fantastic book that I think all entrepreneurs should just read anyway, because I think at some point I, you know, there's a one, I won't mention the business, but there was an entrepreneur that had nine offers to purchase nine. Right. And he didn't take a single one. And to your point about being cash obsessive, which I fully (laughs) <laughs> like non-negotiable, you must obsess about your cash or your working capital and stuff. And um, this guy lost his business for various reasons. Um, and he's a smart guy and he had his time to exit. Um, and I, I interviewed Bo Burlingham uh, a while back and he wrote, literally interviewed 300 entrepreneurs that all sold their businesses. And he I said, didn't go right to finish big. Uh I think he did. Yes, he did. Finish big. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and wow. it's also a fantastic book. So if you read the messy marketplace and, and, you know, finish big together, it's like, now you really know what that whole, well, you have a, uh, you have sort of self-educated yourself about some of the, the stuff that goes on. I mean, that finish big, sorry to interrupt no, you go. is every single entrepreneur that is contemplating, I've read it twice. Every single entrepreneur that's contemplating sale of their business has to read that book. Uh, mm. Has to. And I've seen so many people sell their books, their books, their businesses, <laughs> their business and books. go through the stuff he talks talks about there. Sorry to interrupt you. No, Bruno, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's definitely not the Matt Brown show anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, how great. This is it here. I'm going to bring it up on screen for you guys watching online. Here it is. Uh, finish big. How great entrepreneurs exit their companies on top. And I'll never forget that interview because Bo specifically has been writing for, you know, my whole life, literally from when I was in diapers, he started writing about business and entrepreneurs. He's the editor of Inc. And he said something really interesting to me. He said, of the 300 uh, uh, entrepreneurs he interviewed, nine out of 10 of them were depressed after selling. Crazy. You know, um, and so this is the intellectual exercise that I'm that I've been yeah. doing over the last year. And you want to hear something funny? On my wall here, uh, uh, over a year ago, I wrote, I put together a fake term sheet. <laughs> so it's like dated. So over a year ago, it was dated the first of June this year. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've started the whole process um, just to see what happens. I mean, like, you know, uh, but, but it's funny because like a year ago we weren't, so I've got the number there's like $5 million. So I, I figure that's cool for me to go and start another company over in the U S with the family clean slates and what have you in one year earnouts. I'm good. Um, and, uh, but anyway, it's weird that that's on my wall and yet like the numbers that we're hearing is quite similar not exactly at that level, but you know, it's, it's, yeah. it would get there quite quickly, like in six months from a year, the process, by the way, as you know, it's like 12 to 12 months minimum usually. So in 12 months time, yeah. if things work, you could quite easily get there, but it's fascinating for me just to, to be talking about this with you. Um, so maybe I wanted to, to kind of pick, to use all of that context to maybe ask you this question, which is how has your perspective changed 
you know, in terms of you bought companies now, you're probably unique in the sense of you want to keep that MD, you know, uh, entrepreneurial spark very much alive. And typically what happens is from my understanding in the messy marketplace, not having done this many, many times, but my understanding is that typically in an acquisition, the CEO has a one-year earnout, and then it's like they, they demote him or her to MD and they put a new CEO on top and then now suddenly you're an employee. Um, and, yeah. and you lose it. You lose the drive, the motivation. And, and I was like, I, ca- I cannot see myself ever working for anyone. Like I just I d- can't do that. <laughs> the guys are taking the piss out of me the other day. They were like, so you're going <laughs> to work for someone? That's not going to fly. Uh, but no, uh, so, I mean, there's many thoughts. So it, what Bob Erlingham says in his book as well is it, have a clear view of what you want to do next. I think, Matt, you're a different kind of entrepreneur. So I'm, a, <clears throat> I'm not a serial entrepreneur. And, um, and I'll, I'll use it as an example. There's a, a friend of mine, his name's Avi Adeyal. He's moved to Israel now. He lives in Israel. And uh, Avi, you remind me of Avi. He, he, he's very clever, very straight, to the point that um, <laughs> he can wrap some people up the wrong way. But he just started one business after the other, sold them, sold them, sold them, sold them. Uh, the last one in South Africa was Cura. And then he moved to, to Israel and he started a, a venture capital fund called Entree Capital. And I encourage you to just go on to LinkedIn and follow him. And you see, you see, so those serial entrepreneurs, I think there's almost a path for you where, you know, like, I mean, how many companies have you got? I think you've got three or four company, media companies, like in your space, you know, and, and, and you're almost the guy that, that can become, you know, do that. I, I think you could follow that type of, mm. that type of path. Um, and, uh, yeah, but it, it depends. I mean, you've, you're just, you've got some amazing leaders in your business and you, they wouldn't be around if they didn't feel inspired by you and that. And I think what happens with some of these entrepreneurs is they, like, in the same way, I felt inspired when I had a meeting with Dean who runs our New York office now, I think he also felt some good energy and the idea of being part of a bigger team. And, you know, so there's, there's some magic that can, that can happen, that can happen there as well. Um, But yeah, I I hear you never working, never working for someone. It's it's something to contemplate and, and wrap your mind around. Um, But one last thing before I end this point is, when I, I always thought anything's possible, right? And you epitomize that in my mind, how ambitious you are and all the things you do and how decisive you are and how, you know, even the things you're doing right now. And then after living in New York, even within the first year, I realized there's an exponential side to that view that almost anything is impossible, anything is possible. Um, and I think, I think that will happen to you when you, when you go to the U.S., that you're, It'll, it, it will amplify your ambitions, not that they're small, but it will, it will amplify them uh, significantly. But you're going in with an, your eyes open. There are so many casualties. You know, I had the opportunity to spend some time with Alan Pollard as we went into the U.S., who's one of the directors or on the Exco of Discovery, and he kind of shared something. Discovery, one of the greatest South African businesses ever. I mean, absolute legends. Oh, they still have vitality there. But they got their ass handed to them, eh? Mm. But this is my thing. This is my thing. I, I, I and I think it's an, it's an important conversation to have. I mean, for I'm now I have a, obviously a, a, a audience all around the world, but I'm talking specifically about African founders, entrepreneurs, because at some point, it's another thing. Bo said to me. I think it was Bo said to me. You only make money when you sell, uh, because in a and it's true. I think it's true. It's very, okay. There's some things that can be argued one way or the other, but for me, it's some things are like, well, it's mainly true. So that's, therefore it's true. <laughs> you, can't, yeah. you can't just make judgment calls on like waiting for all the evidence all the time, but you only make money when you sell because otherwise you are reinvesting all the time, all the time. Yeah. People, products, systems, yeah. marketing. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, no, so you start right. So just with this, so when we went into, so we, we have historically responded very well to a crisis, okay? And uh, so for the last two economic resets, we were very aggressive, came out of it a better business. In this one, we were very aggressive. 
There was some soul destroying stuff we had to do. We did three rounds of retrenchments in twenty in in in, in twenty twenty, and we that's the total we'd done in the previous twenty years. So we cut costs aggressively, and uh, we had the worst sales year since twenty fourteen. Our turnover shrunk for the first time since the business has been going. It actually went backwards. Our revenue went backwards. But we cut costs. We put 50% back into cash flows and profits, and the other 50% we put into, into growth and innovation. And so, so with the aggressive thing we're doing now, we're not paying dividends anymore. So we're not, we're not making it. So yeah. shareholders, we're not making anything. Let me put it this way. I have more debt now than I've ever had by nothing. <laughs> <laughs> by absolutely nothing. So like if, uh, you know, yeah. so like we, we're doing some stuff and the guy asked for me to sign surety. And I was like, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, just take and it all, did. dude. <laughs> no, that's it. That's it. You know, so sure. And I mean, what's it resulted in? So we went from 2020 where we decreased in our revenue by 5%. So for, for, the, for 2021, our revenue is going to grow by almost 40%. And, you know, so, but, but it comes back to a point you made. Yeah, I think there is that liquidity event, which generally is where entrepreneurs make money. Um, there are not many entrepreneurs that own 100% of their business that are aggressive and want to grow that are just absolutely coining it. As you say, nine times out of 10, they're just putting stuff back in. Right? Mm, and it sucks. It, it's soul destroying because the, the, um, my mentor, uh, I just have the world, you, you know him, I, I'm pretty sure if I mentioned his name, but um, he he was the one that told me this all, as I mentioned, and I've been like checking in with him with like various things, not like every week, every month, whatever, but like yeah. uh, when I'm having a crisis, I'll be like, yeah. buddy, need to see you, calling in the troops. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. and, uh, and he said, um, um, he was talking to me about what to do after the exits and he used a very, he doesn't, tell you what to do. He just, he'll just tell you a story, which is what I love about him. And he said to me, you know, cause I was, I was like, should I sell one day and not, you know, should you sell, shouldn't you sell? And how, when should you sell? How much is enough? Da, 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 da. And what do you do afterwards to Bur Burlingham's points? And he said, cause we don't obviously want to go into clinical depression after you sell your business and be rich. Cause that wouldn't be kiff. Yeah. So you want to have a purpose and meaning tied into, into your business. And yeah. When you sell, what you don't, what you don't recognize, I believe, is that when you are in this pressure cooker, like you said, you know, you spend 20, 15 years building this business. It, your the the meaning that you attach to your business is so huge. Yeah. And when you you don't think you just go, ah, oh, this sucks. I don't like this business anymore, or I want out, or whatever your personal story is in your head, and then you sell it. And all your meaning goes, or the like. Yeah. It's like now it's somebody else's. Why must I do that? I'm not going to take that shit anymore. Uh, so, so yeah. your, your meaning goes. And uh, and one of the things that my mentor was was asking me, he said, you know, what kind of entrepreneur are you at the end of the day? Because uh, he, he spoke about this one a person he knows who founded a company, the stars aligned, and he sold it for like billions. Like he just made a killing. Yeah. And this guy, this guy that sold his business was sitting in front of him and he said, I'm depressed. He's miserable. He's unhappy. And I was like, how, how is it that you can score so huge and be so miserable with your life? Um, yeah. and, uh, and maybe I'm using that to maybe ask the next question, which is, what would you do if you did sell? Or let's just say, uh, you know, you did exit in whenever, 2024. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a friend of mine you should interview who's just gone through exactly this. And he, in one of our meetings, he said, if he had, if, if he had a certain amount of cash, he wouldn't have sold. And he, he's the guy that said I should read Finish Big, actually. And he's, he'd, be, he'd be a fascinating guy to interview. His he's, uh, business is based uh, in the U.S. And... Um, he did, a, he did a dream deal. I mean, it's just, I, if I, I, I can't get into detail, but he did a dream deal. And uh, he'd be a fascinating guy to interview. So, you know, I've, I, I've, I've made some big life decisions where I've had to change course. This would be, 
that will, this would probably be right up there. You know, when I decided to to move back to South Africa for love, um, I took my dream book, wrote all the, the things down, and then I added four or five extras, and I kind of said, U.S., South Africa, uh, you know, and uh, it, I, it, I had to move back to give, to give us a chance. Um, so that's probably one of the most considered and detailed analytical decisions I've ever made. I think a couple of things happened that have shifted my thinking. One, when my mom passed away, I, I definitely a totally different view of mortality settled. And then when my daughter was born, um, something else shifted. And, um, you know, so I've definitely been in a place, Matt, where I've thought more about, okay, Sure, I'm I'm financially good, and but the majority of my wealth sits in in net shirt. Um, and so we we built that into our strategic thinking, saying, okay, fine, if we were to exit, you know, how do we run the business to optimize that? And um, I I read a, a fascinating article that kind of put forward the idea that you you migrate more to coaching, teaching, and mentoring as one perspective. So I'm trying to explore that. So I don't have a clear answer on that, but I think, I think I could share experience of what I've done with people. And I think I could find that meaningful and I think it could add value. Um, and uh, I would like to stay around if I did sell the business, as long as the people thought I could add value, <laughs> you know, but you never know. Like, I mean, I know friends that thought that and then they, they come into a boardroom and they get there. Their marching uh, marching orders. Um, I have a passion for public education. I would definitely put more time into that uh, in South Africa, public education. Uh, and being a father, it would probably give me more time to be an active and present father. But as far as what next from a business perspective, I don't, I don't have an answer. But you would start another company, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing. Uh, I think <clears throat> the other one, the other thing I, I've kind of learned is that going back to the story that the guy was saying, he said, the reason why he was so depressed is because he knows that he was a one hit wonder. He's not the guy who's going to go found another company. Um, and, uh, when he was telling me the story, he said, so what, what are you? Are you, if you sold, what would you do? Would you find another company or would you go get a job? Because <laughs> those are two different people. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, as I said, like, you know, I just have a problem with authority. <laughs> so, you know, um, but, um, but, um, I wanted, um, my kids just walked in and playing with the sound desk, <laughs> the joys of podcasting from home. <laughs> uh, but, um, I have a question for you. Um, Microsoft, or in fact, before I go there, EO and YPO, um, I know a lot of entrepreneurs who are in the, the entrepreneurs organization uh, and YPO as well. Um, I've been told that uh, it, there's a lot of value there uh, just from a community and knowledge perspective, et cetera. Um, wanted yeah. to get your views, um, you know, for, for entrepreneur, I think you, I think you need to be making, I think it's 10 million a year or million a year to, to get in there. But anyway, um, whatever that number is, you you got there. Do you get in there or not? Um, and what has your experience been? Yeah. So EO, I think is a million dollars of revenue. You have to be a founding member or major shareholder. So it's just your turnover that they look at. And then YPO, I think is either, I think it's, it's between 12 and $15 million in turnover slash revenue. And you need to either be the CEO or managing director or key leader. I, I, sure, to keep it succinct, um, I could talk for days on this. I'm, I, I recommend it for every single entrepreneur and leader. I couldn't, I couldn't recommend it enough. Uh, and it isn't just about business. It's, um, it'll just, uh, it becomes, uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing organization for personal growth and development across every facet of your life, family, health, fitness, everything. And um, it, it's, it can have a huge, and, and, you know, the global network is huge because if you're traveling to Seattle, which I often would, I would reach out and meet with other entrepreneurs in Seattle through Entrepreneurs Organization or, or YPO. And um, 
So there's this huge, huge, huge global network. There are some values in it which are about sharing experience and not telling people what to do. Everybody's got an opinion, but the, the concept of gestalt is one of when you're in a structured forum, you share from experience. You don't say, hey, Matt, you should do this, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm massively grateful for Ian Wipe, and I couldn't recommend it enough to any entrepreneur or business leader that, that qualifies and meets the criteria. Um, I could not recommend it enough, though. Mm, that's amazing. What do you get from the network, though? I mean, outside of hey, I'm coming to Seattle. What what kind of um, you know network effects can an entrepreneur get? Because, um, and by the way, can can a global network like EO be used to help scale your business? Yeah. So there's strict non solicitations. You can't go into the network and sell your stuff. Um, you can be kicked out of EO and YPO for that. Um, so let me just talk, I'll talk about some of the key pillars of value. So you get put into a forum where an entrepreneur like you and I would be put into a group of about six to eight people. And we meet once a month for between three to four hours. There's a structured presentation and then the updates. And it, so it becomes like this informal board of advisors that have no agenda, but to learn and grow and support each other. So that's one thing that's for them. Uh, the value of that, I cannot put on uh, put uh, put enough value on that. Then the global network. So you are. So I mean, the way the way we acquired the business in Manhattan is, I reached out to uh, New York EO. I met with all the guys that ran technology businesses. I said, "This is what we're thinking of doing." And then one of the guys ended up uh, having moved to Denver, and he we ended up we ended up buying their business, and he's still a minority shareholder to this day. Um, so that's one way it supported our growth. Uh, and yeah, so I think it's knowing, so if you want to, hypothetically, you wanted to move to Austin, okay. And that's where you want to be based. You go into that chapter and you meet with every single person there. What's it like doing business here? Who do you know in my industry? Um, uh, what do you think the key things are I should look out for? Uh, do you know a business broker that could help me with acquisitions? Uh, do you know any AR or receivables funding organizations where I could extricate some finance on their debtors? Um, so it's like, yeah, I mean, imagine having having a network of twenty thousand mats around the world that you could you can you can call and maybe Matt's busy that month and he doesn't reply. But but nine times out of ten, if you mail someone and ask them, can I have a chat to you about something specific? They're going to reply and they're going to help you. Mm. So it's insanely powerful, insanely powerful. And like anything, there's some dicks in the organization. There's some arrogant people. Um, but in general, uh, great people, very helpful, very smart. And um, yeah. Yeah, 20,000 Matt Browns would be quite a thing. <laughs> be like my, my definition of hell. <laughs> but tell me um um Aaron, what if what have you learned about mentorship because um i get emails from people and they're like oh you know can you help will you mentor me etc and i almost feel like i just i i I really want to but i have a podcast there's lots of you know digital mentorship i suppose okay it's not personalized or whatever but i mean christ there's so much value in the show it's it's nuts um, but if you do decide to pursue a mentor, what is your advice to an entrepreneur around what to look for? Yeah, I think I, I think some people are are naturally good at this. Uh, like some people are good mentors. I don't I don't think I don't think I'm I'm good. I don't think I'm a good mentor. But it's probably something I could put energy into, learn and improve at. I've I've had some mentors, um, and uh, if I think of the two of them, one is uh, Peter Flack, um, who just yeah, just unbelievably smart. Another gentleman called Dennis Cusin, both uh, amazing South African business leaders and just amazing humans as well. Um, I yeah, I just again, uh, so I got to Dennis Cusin through through EO. So he was in WAPIA, and there was a EO WAPIA mentorship program. So I got I got paired with Dennis. So that was I was very lucky with that. 
Um, yeah, I think you want someone that you think you can learn from and someone that's going to be really honest with you. You want that candor, you know. I remember Peter Flack in the early days, I think it was the third meeting or something, and he's looking at our numbers and saying, but there's no profit. So I said, yeah, no, we're growing, dude. It's uh, like we're in the early phases. All like, he says, no, you don't waste your time. You must make profit. Finished. Hey, what do you say? He says, what you coming in there? Make sure. Jeez, that's a mouthful. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so it was like, it's just super candid and straight, which I really, really enjoyed, um, you know, and that experience. And then I think as, a, as a, someone that's being mentored, you do the work. You do the heavy lifting. You do the scheduling. Uh, you, uh, you know, give feedback. If they've given you a perspective, give feedback. Mm. Um, it's about you making the most of them and their experience. Um, I've never had a paid force uh, mentorship where I suppose maybe it's uh, or coaching or so maybe it's the other way around. But um, yeah, look, look for that candor. Look for someone you think you can learn from, and then uh, do make the most of that opportunity. You've got to do the work. Yeah, it's an interesting one, right? Because um, I think for, for, for me, one of the things I've learned with my mentor is that you really go there not for advice, but you, you go there for perspective. And, uh, you know, because yeah. to your point, it is, uh, you know, the points you made earlier around it's a, this is pressure cooker that lives for a long time and it sucks up all your energy yeah. and all your time and you make huge sacrifices. You can't be the dad you want to be in can't be the husband that you that you want to be and you can't relate to your yeah. kids because your mind's like in, in this other space and you're sitting at the table it's like it's hectic right so uh, when you there and you do that year day after day week after week month after month year after year and that is your existence and you dig it because you you chose to be there you hope you dig it <laughs> otherwise yeah. it's a pretty miserable existence um but uh, a mentor and in that space in that space, you get stuck inevitably. We all do. It's like, oh God, I've, I'm going into a space. I don't know financial services or I'm trying to sell. I don't know. Uh, what should I do? I actually phoned you and asked you for advice, uh, uh, you know, uh, as well. Um, and um, and uh, it's all about for perspective for me because when you're stuck inside the bottle, you can't read the label. You, you can't really see your own. No. You can't really see your own shit. Um, and so, um, a, a mentor is there not to tell you, well, this is what I would do sales wise. It's like, well, you know, whatever they say, it's about perspective, but I think you have to trust it. And I think, uh, having more than one mentor is important. One of the things I wrote about in my book is this thing called idea called triangulation. So I would go to you, I'd go to my mentor and I'd go to my wife. Always ask your wife. <laughs> Sure. Trust me <laughs> on that one. Yeah. Ask your wife. No, they, they know you so well. Yeah, they do. And they know what you're about. There's the business advice and there's the person that really knows you. And I think you have to triangulate yeah. between like, between you, my mentor, and my wife. And I said, listen, I'm thinking this. What do you think? And then yeah. they'll go, no, bro, you're out of your mind. You don't have any profit. Crazy. And your brand sucks. <laughs> like, whatever. And my wife's like, yeah, but honey, you hate the business. And then my mentor's like, dude, sales are the lifeblood of any business. And you're like, wait a second. And you look to see what makes the most sense for you, right? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's so well said. I think I've maybe done that by accident, but I've never heard it framed. I've never heard it framed in that way. That makes, that makes so much sense, so. But to pick up on the, it's the the fact the real the real rub is you have to be prepared to be to ask for help, you know. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know what your experience has been, Aaron. What has your experience been? Do you feel that entrepreneurs are, are like they want to put their hand up and ask for help, or do they find like they want to suffer until they're really stuck? Yeah, I think um, it's a good question. I, I wonder. I think sometimes maybe we we suffer too much. And if I were to share a perspective, I would ask more. Um, you know, in the early days of our business, I sent a cocky email to Adrian Gore telling him that nature is the IT or this version of discovery. And uh, then he'd connect me with Trent Rossini. And anyway, we I think the biggest SLA we had at the time was like 5,000 rand a month. I think we signed a 70,000 rand a month with a SLA with a business Trent Rossini's in and all they can do is say no. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are used to asking and hustling, but 
never hurts to ask her. Yeah, I think um, uh, it's uh, being uh, being vulnerable is the is one of the brave, well, one of the 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 most authentic forms of courage. Uh, because I think most most of our lives suck. I'll tell, I'll say that straight. Um, you know, people are like, yeah, man, I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm like, I'm cool, bro. I'm driving a Harley Davidson, and I spent a hundred grand on a mountain bike. But your life sucks. You might have material access, but you're actually a miserable sod. You know, um, and uh, and it's fine. Entrepreneurship, as you know, are in the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows. And yeah, when sure. and when you low. You, especially so, the South African mindset for me is like we just suffer. Right? We must fuss back. We must not ask for help. We must not go to Oren and tell him that we're, that we're fucked or that we're having yeah. a really bad time. Um, and it's pride. And, and for me, pride gets in the way so often in front of what truly is our greatest strength, right, which is our ability to ask for help. Yeah, I think that's very insightful, Matt. I agree with you 100%. So, Oren, I'm cognizant of time. Um, why do you do what you do? Why do you suffer so much? <laughs> no, you know, I love what I do. Uh, and uh, I feel fucking blessed and grateful to do what I do. Uh, yeah, okay, so this trip, Liesl and Lulu were meant to arrive on Thursday, which is uh, tomorrow. Now they're not. So I'm, Tulu, I'm in Tulum for two weeks. So I'm not going to see my girls for probably and my little 15-month-old baby for a month, which was never the plan. So I can whine and moan about that. But I'm so blessed. I'm so grateful. And uh, I decided in 2007 to be balanced. Until then, I think I would have uh, would have had a heart attack or something if I carried on like that. So I got, the, I got my version of balance right. And um, I think that's helped me sustain. But it's, I love the people I work with. I love the clients. I love the challenges. And, and you know, in our space, we like, like when, when clients escalate to me, there's a real problem and there's real pressure. And it's either been a cyber attack or something like that. So it's not all a bit of roses. And uh, I mean, our call holding time in our, on our service desk, I'll tell you this, has been under 10 seconds for probably over 10 years. Whoa. I've never got a single compliment for that. Nobody sent me emails saying, dude, that's amazing. Because that's sometimes what they just expect. But I, I feel very blessed and grateful and I, and I love what I do. And I think this whole dialogue you've, you, you've, you've taken us through, it's quite crazy because we love, well, I love what I do so much. And at some point, probably got to wrap my mind around exiting. And now, what am I, like, I love what I do so much. So it's, it's such a valuable dialogue, this matter. Mm. Um, Oren, any final comments from you? Anything you want to share? Um, anything at all? No, no, just, uh, yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed this discussion. There's a whole piece of it which is cathartic and has made me think about some things and that. So thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity, Matt. Well, Oren, it's been uh, obviously a great, great, great conversation, agree. And uh, you're obviously, for me personally, to have you in my network is a, is a real gold a piece of gold in my mind. So, <laughs> so thank yeah. you so much for, uh, for, be, uh, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And thank you all of you for listening and tuning in. Obviously the show wouldn't be anything without you guys. So keep on listening. All right, guys, we'll see you again soon. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Matt Brown show guys. Don't forget. You can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, You're In A Game, for free right now today, you can grab that on mathbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my 
clients. Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.